Hi, this is Danielle Krissa from The Jealous Curator, and this is episode 194 of Art for Your Ear. Before we jump into this week's fabulous episode, I wanted to let you know about a few things I've got planned for the coming months. So you know how I talk about worth and knowing that your art has worth, your work has worth, and you have worth? Well, with my 12-year Jealous Curator anniversary arriving this coming Monday, what? Yep, 12 years. I have decided to make a couple of little changes, and I hope that you will come along with me. So over the past dozen years, I've often been asked, how do you make money from the Jaws Curator? Well, spoiler alert, I don't. (laughs) I know, right? Super tight business model. When I started in 2009, other blogs had banner ads and sponsored posts. It was all the rage. Um, The buzzword of the day was monetize. But I just did not want to do that. I wanted my site to be about art. I wanted it to be quiet with nothing flashing on the side. I wanted it just to be a space to look at gorgeous, thoughtful, inspiring art every day. And I have stuck to that ever since. Anyway, up until a few years ago, I was still making money from a full-time job as a graphic designer, but I quit to focus full-time on Jealous Curator. Now, I have a bit of income that comes from things like speaking gigs or my Skillshare classes, um, the occasional podcast sponsor. So here's where the tweaks come in. One, I am joining a podcast network that my good friend, Andy J. Pizza, is starting. Yay! Now, this will not impact you at all, except that the episodes will all have um, an ad or two uh, throughout the episode. Um, That said, it is super important to both Andy and I that any sponsors we work with will actually have something to do with helping our listeners with their creative pursuits. In other words, there won't be anything about mattresses or granola bars. Next, and this is the really big one. I have talked a lot about how alone I felt for the decades following art school. But by starting The Jealous Curator and writing books about creative blocks and inner critics, I've come to realize that there are hundreds of thousands of us who are all in this crazy creative game together. If you get blocked, it just means you're in the club. If your inner critic tries to stop you, yep, you're in the club too. We're also the people who have to make because we can't not. We are the ones standing in front of walls of colored pastels at the art store, even if we don't actually work with pastels. We're the people spending hours online ooing and aahing over the work of other artists because we just can't get enough. How did they do that? What material is that? You know the drill. So I'm starting a club. It's called the No Such Thing as Too Much Art Society, and it will be launching sometime in March. Basically, all of the artsy content I create right now, daily posts, info on upcoming shows, my weekly newsletter, um, plus a bunch of other treats like jumpstarter projects, historical tidbits, book recos, etc., will all be delivered directly to your inbox every Monday through Saturday if you're a member of the society. Now, let's talk membership fees. How many of you drink coffee? I sure do, but that's no secret. (laughs) So if you skip one latte per month, you can afford this club. Yep, the No Such Thing as Too Much Art Society will cost 
$3 per month. Here's where worth comes back in. I want to value myself and the 50 plus hours a week I put into making the Gels Curator run. But I know you guys need your money for oil paint and that fancy paper that you've been eyeing. I know you have. Um, you need it to buy work from other artists that you love and, you know, for life in general. So that is how I arrived at the price of one latte math. $3 per month. Anyway, that was a really long story. Just to say, <laughs> it's time for me to realize this isn't a little side project anymore. It is my life, and I love it, and I really want to keep doing it. And as I said earlier, I really, really hope you'll come along for the ride. Oh, and obviously, we will have club t-shirts, mugs, and badges, because who doesn't love a little artsy merch? All right. Enough of that for now. I will keep you posted as this all comes together in the next month or so. So, last spring, I came across the absolutely jaw-dropping work of New York-based artist Fabiola Jean-Louise. How great is that name? The first thing I saw were her insanely detailed, life-size Baroque gowns made of, wait for it, paper. Oh, but wait, there's more. So much more. As I dove down the rabbit hole, I also found her ethereal photographs of women actually wearing those paper dresses, and within those photographs, there were gorgeous paintings, also by Fabiola. And then there was Rest in Peace, a gown in which the bust was illuminated by a blue light, a silhouette of a figure hanging within the light. Okay, clearly I had to have her on the podcast. Oh, but what's this in her Instagram feed? a brand new baby, and a toddler. <laughs> okay, no, I'm going to give this woman a moment to herself. Well, it turns out she didn't really need it. Um, she can handle all of the things. <laughs> so finally, let's jump down that rabbit hole with her and get all of my questions answered. Ready? Calling Fabiola Jean-Louise at her studio in New York. Hi, Fabiola. Welcome to Art for Your Ear. Thank you so much for having me. I am honored to be on your show. Oh, well, you know, I, I found you a few months ago, loved everything immediately. First thing I thought was I have to get her on the podcast. And then I looked at your Instagram feed and there was a brand new baby. In your feed. And I thought, you know what, I'm going to give her a minute. And uh, so I gave you a few minutes, but here you are now. And um, I have so many questions for you. And I know you've been doing lots of interviews I've sort of seen on um, your Instagram. And I thought, I don't, I never, perhaps this will come across as an unprepared interviewer, but I never like to go and watch those things because I kind of like to be surprised. I love that and totally not um, unprepared at all. I find actually, I don't even like to look at questions sometimes. Yeah because I think that it impacts the way a raw organic conversation would go. So no, I'm down for that. Okay, perfect. So if I ask you stuff that you've been asked 5 million times, just roll with it. It's all good. Okay. <laughs> okay. So the first thing I want to know is, I know that you were born in Haiti, right? Yes. Um, how long did you live there? Where did you grow up? And were you an artsy kid while you were growing up? So I was born in Haiti. Um, I left at a very young age. And I came to America, I would say around two now, because time distorts memory. 
Uh, I might have been a little bit younger, a little bit older, uh, but I did travel to Haiti as a young child for a little bit and spending months at a time there, but that ended abruptly for some reason. And it didn't, my visit to Haiti again, didn't happen until I was an adult. That was 19 years later. Wow. So there was a nice, yeah, there was a nice gap in my, in my um, visit to Haiti and really just connecting in that way. Hmm. Uh, as far as being a creative, I've always been a creative as, as far back as I can remember. And, and primarily that stems from having a father that was very creative and did everything well uh, that he made. So um, I learned very early on that all the magic happened in the details, um, <laughs> which I guess speaks to the work that I do today. I was going to say, <laughs> there's a lot of magic. There's a lot of magic going on in there. So what did your dad make? Was he an artist or was he, what, what, was it, what did he do? Yeah, he, well, he was a self-proclaimed artist. That's not what he did in his regular day life. Yeah. Um, but at home, I grew, it was like a, a, his, his lab, his science lab of all of his experimentation. So he did anything from, um, you know, rebuild an entire apartment to look like this amazing house, really, like this carpentry, everything that you could think of. Um, making our garments, making my my brother's graduation suit, just making everything. Yeah, he just made, always made. Um, And then later on as an adult, I found out that he was actually a painter before meeting my mom. Thinking about all the different things that I saw my father do, and I really can't tell you which one impressed me more than the other. It was just amazing after amazing. Um, Wow. And so when you, when you're making stuff when you're little, um, did you compare yourself to him? Did you, did you think that your work wasn't good enough because his was so great? No. um, That's an interesting question, actually. I've never thought of it in that way. I think I just aspired to be like him. Mm -hmm. I aspired to take great care in the work that I did. You know, he always said to me as a child, as a Haitian, you know, little girl and, and coming from a Haitian father, he always said, the world doesn't think that Haitians can do anything right. And as a Haitian, it's your job to prove them otherwise. It's your job to do things right. If there's a right way to do it, do it. And what he was really talking about was taking great care in the details and making sure that if I did something, um, I did it well. Mm-hmm. And um, so I grew up with that. And so there was never really this, this feeling of, of jealousy or, or wanting to do something better. It was more, I want to be like my dad. Yeah, that's amazing. The only reason I ask is because my mom um, is an artist and she could, she still can just draw. She could sit here and draw you perfectly mm-hmm. where I could never do that. And so when I was a little kid, I'd be trying to draw a horse, which did not look like a horse. You know, but I knew that my mom could sit down and draw a horse perfectly. Mm-hmm. So sometimes I had that frustration between my head and my hand because like I was watching and I'm the oldest. So for a little while it was just us, you know, and I would see her do it. And I couldn't figure out why I couldn't do it. Um, but she was so encouraging me, you know, encouraging me to say that this isn't the only way to make art. 
There's wow. lots of other ways to make art. So I sort of found my own path, which was amazing. Um, but when my son was little, he's an only child and he would lose his mind if he couldn't color inside the lines or if he couldn't spell his name properly. And I remember talking to a preschool teacher and she said, well, as an only child, there's no kids around for him to compare himself to. He's only comparing himself to you and your husband mm -hmm. and you guys can write your names perfectly. Yes. You know, so it's such an interesting um, thing, but yeah, I had that inspiration with my mom, but at the same time I was like, ah, well, you know, I think that's a very important thing to talk about, though. There's a lesson in all of that, right? Um, I'm hearing, and I've, I've realized, too, on this journey of an art as an artist, is that, one, it's really important to not compare yourself to others. Mm -hmm. you, you have your own creative voice um, that you need to explore and be true to. And until you do that... Um, you're never really going to be creating the work that that speaks from your spirit. And, yeah. and in turn, you're not going to ever be able to have the real deep conversations with others, the viewers, um, if you're not coming from a, an authentic place. Um, and I think that's something that we learn very early on is, is that, you know, mm -hmm. looking at the people, if you're lucky to have them, the people that you respect in that line of work, and say, I can't do it like this, but I can do it like that. Yeah. Um, and, and that's really what can help get us on the right path. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, it's pretty inspiring and amazing to have those people in your life. Lots of people I have on the podcast say that they're the only sort of artistic person in their family and they were the weirdo because, <laughs> you know, they were the only ones that were cutting up magazines and, you know, turning shoe boxes into something else or whatever. So that's amazing that you had that. Um, so where were you in the States? Where did you guys live? So when we first moved to America, we moved to Harlem. So mm. immediately I was already in like the epicenter of it all um, as a young child. And, um, you know, I, I guess the reason why we did that was because my, my grandmother was already living in Harlem with her, the rest of my father's uh, siblings. So we did that for, you know, I would say maybe two years. And then we, we relocated to Brooklyn and my parents have been living in the same apartment that we lived in back then in the eighties in Brooklyn. Wow. Um, and, you know, it was just a really amazing uh, thing to, to grow up in a town like Brooklyn, a city like a, a borough like Brooklyn, um, and then really not even be aware of Manhattan at that point. <laughs> <laughs> You know, until my father took me out of Brooklyn and, and into the village where then I became like, what is this? Who are these people? And this is where I need to be. So it's like a lot of discovering and rediscovering um, through, you know, through my adolescence. Yeah. Well, speaking of your adolescence, high school of fashion industries. Mm -hmm. What? Yeah. I need to hear all about that. So, so my so here's the thing, and this is something that I, I have to get out because some people read this in my bio and they get a little confused, like what's going on. So I went to high school of fashion industries for nearly four years, which means that I am an alumni of two schools. I am an alumni of high school of fashion industries and an alumni of City as High School. Um, I, I actually left 
fashion fashion industries maybe six months prior to graduating because I thought living in Chelsea with 11 or 12 other roommates was like the dopest thing in the world and I didn't need to go to school. And then after spanging on the streets of the village for, you know, like a month, I was like, okay, this is not cute. I need to get my life together <laughs> and go back to school. <laughs> so I did, I, I went back to school, but it ended up being city as. So that's the official school that I graduated from, which I'm actually quite happy about because I found out later that Basquiat also um, graduated from that school. Wow. That's kind of cool. Yeah, um, that's pretty cool. <laughs> yeah, so I am an alumni of two high schools. Um, high School of Fashion Industries was amazing, it, and it definitely impacted um, the way that I work today as far as like having some foundation for fashion and an understanding of the, um, the body as it relates to um, wearing garments. Mm -hmm. Um, and also it was very important for me to meet all the different young designers that were, you know, growing up at that time. Um, so it was a very special time. So how did you decide, like, what, what, how did you end up going there? Okay. So that's, that's actually very important in my journey as well. Um, so because my parents um, decided early on they were going to have me, my sister, and my brother go to Catholic school, we spent eight years of my education, all of uh, elementary and Catholic school. And so by the time I was approaching high school, um, I didn't really, I thought I'd have to beg to go to public school, but they saw a natural talent in me because I had been creating for all of that time. And so I was actually the only child to be allowed to go to public school. My sister and my brother had to go to Catholic high school, but they saw the talent in me and they allowed me to apply and audition. And I did. And I got in. And that was the best wow. thing. <laughs> oh, my God. And so what kind of classes did you get to take? So I took classes that were fashion. So I was a fashion major. Um, there was marketing, I think illustration. I can't remember all of the, the majors there at the school, but for me, I was a fashion major. Um, so it was sewing. I mean, one of my favorite classes was a class that had maybe about 20 to 25 singer, old singer sewing machines lined up. You know, I felt Sounds like I was cool. in the 1800s or something. Um, <laughs> They had several classes like that and and we would just sit at these old machines with the large foot pedals learning how to work these old machines and sew on them um so that was my first experience of really realizing that fashion at some point would play a role in my life wow so at that time was your plan to be a fashion designer when you grew up like it was yeah. it was i mean Part of the reason why I left eventually was because I became totally desensitized to that, <laughs> to that idea, you know, yeah. and, um, really feeling like the fashion industry didn't offer what I needed. You know, it wasn't speaking to Black identity in a way that I wanted it to. I didn't realize it at the time that that's what it was, you know, this, um, this emptiness where it, it came to... Um, feeling like fashion was talking to people of color. You know, I was very aware somehow that these designers and these companies were coming to the kids on the streets for inspiration, you know, for the runway. And they were sending out their, their minions, if you will, to 
to look at what the kids on the streets were doing, but they weren't paying us for that and they weren't crediting us for that. And, and they were also not talking to us. They weren't, they weren't talking to, to the different cultures that we're pulling from. And I just felt like, you know, this is full of crap. I don't yeah. want to be a part of that industry. So I left. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And so, um, so of course I read your bio, which is how I've, of course, like everyone else found the uh, high school of fashion industry, but then there's a gap. So what did you end up going to art school or did you just start working or what happened there? Nice, nice attention to detail. So thank you. Your <laughs> I, dad would be proud. Yeah. Yes. Yes. He would. <laughs> um, that gap actually is important in my journey because it speaks to the fact that I became a mom at a very early age. So I just kind of dip out of everything at 19 wow. because I decided, you know, screw the club scene, screw the club kid scene, the street kid scene. Um, I need to do something more with my life. I felt like I really just wanted to be a mom. So I got, I, I married my, my best friend on the scene and we had, you know, two children together. Um, and so 10 years after that, uh, we were divorced and I was a single mom to not just two children, but not three public assistance, um, and then decided that med school was something I should set my sights on. Um, yeah. Med school. Yeah. I was actually, I was, I was, I was actually three months away from graduating a biology from a a biology major or pre-med to enter med school. So I had all my letters of, of referrals in hand. (laughs) Um, to be accepted to med school. And I decided that photography and art was instead going to be my path. So here I am. Oh, my word. Okay. So did you go to school for that? Or did you just, are you self-taught? Did you just start going? I, I am totally self-taught. Um, wow. So, so what happened was in the, the pre-med program, I, I discovered along with my teachers that I did have um a a talent for science which was a big surprise to me i i had no idea that the brain could do art and science right um at the same time and do them equally decent mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah <laughs> um so i i i i did the science for as long as i possibly could and then i got to the point where it was therapy for me um, doing this just to get through the rigorous um, schooling that I was going through. I mean, I, I was I was literally memorizing Bibles, you know, like these, yeah. these biology books and science books were as thick as as I don't even know what to de- compare them to, and I had to memorize that somehow. And so, with three, our- with three kids. With three kids, right? So we're waking. I'm waking up at like four thirty, five a.m. every single day just to get three kids out of the house, so that I can go to school, um, and then after school go to my part time job, and then after that pick up all the kids and do dinner, and and then you know also on public assistance to help supplement uh, in the ways that my my job couldn't. So there was so much going on, but I was super t- determined. You know, like my kids really were the inspiration for me to do that. And I don't regret one bit of that journey. Mm-hmm. 
at the same time, I really had to take a look at when I started doing RS therapy just as a hobby to get through all of it um, and started doing it more than I was doing my day job. Um, mm -hmm. I really had to start looking at whether or not the journey I was taking was for me or for my family, you know, and yes, it, it's for a good reason if it's for your family, but it is it your is it a good re reason to exist? Really yeah. is what I was thinking, you know, it's like, I'll, I'll make others happy, but where's my happiness and all of that. Um, well, and your children see that, right? Yeah. That's the other thing, right? Yeah. It's having as a parent, you have, you, you develop this amazing sense of foresight in a way where you're not just looking at yourself and your children at that moment, but you're also looking at the future and you're thinking, down the line, if I end up being miserable and unhappy, who is going to be the recipient of all of that? Mm -hmm. It's going to be my kids. Um, and that just wasn't a good enough existence for me. Um, I felt like I, I could do better and I wanted to do better. And it was going to require a giant leap of faith and many sacrifices to make it happen. But I was determined really to um, think about what I wanted out of this art career. And if I was able to answer that honestly with myself, then I would at least feel comfortable to start it. And, and once I did answer that, what I wanted out of the, the journey, um, I just jumped right in. Wow. <laughs> and were you just doing photography at that moment or were you painting then too? Um, so no, it was really just photography. I um, started experimenting with concept conceptual photography and I was so dismayed when I found out that conceptual photography requ required um, Photoshop, because my brother is a trained um, uh, graphic designer and for years had been trying to teach me Photoshop. And I was like, no, 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 I don't want to know anything about this. It's complicated. Uh, when I read that, that's what I would need to learn. I was just like, Ugh, I, I think I'm good. But I was so obsessed that I just, ate it for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. I just taught myself Photoshop and, and um, didn't even think about any other way of telling the story with painting. It was just, how do I make this digital thing um, tell the stories that I want to tell? Uh, also, it was, there was a convenience of this um, immediate gratification, you know, you doing digital work as far as like being a busy mom still in school and working, I needed something that was going to be immediate for me to feel like that therapy was coming right through. Yeah. The day. <laughs> that you were getting it right now. I was getting it right <laughs> <Yeah>. now. <laughs> um, and so painting, painting wasn't a thought. Nothing else was a thought. It was like, okay, I have this digital thing. It can be, you know, translated and I can do whatever. And then boom, there it is. So that's why I mean, that's actually so interesting, you know, cause I talked to so many artists that are moms or people that are wanting to become artists, but they're moms and they're, you know, they're like, Oh, I set up all the stuff, but then I have to put it all away and I don't have a room in the house for it. But yeah, doing something digitally, you don't have to set up the dining room and clean up the dining room and let the paint dry. You can just get it done and get that satisfaction. Yes. Yes, you can. I mean, now I find that I'm working a little backwards in that now, because I know how to do that because I started with digital work. Now I try to find uh, ways to, to achieve that in other works that I do. So I am now doing paintings and sculptural um, work, but 
I'm, I'm applying some of what I've learned through digital that, you know, the need for instant gratification. So <laughs> if I can't shoot with my, my digital camera and I can't get on Photoshop to edit, um, my go-to is Polaroids. You know, I love Polaroids. Mm. Polaroids. Just pull it out and make a dreamy, you know, moody photograph and then boom, I feel better. So. <laughs> <laughs> I, love it. I love it. I always joke that my husband, um, um, before I was making art a lot, I, I quit for years and years and um, I get really grouchy if I don't, if I'm not making something. And so on days that I was particularly grouchy, he'd be like, why, why don't you go make a collage or something? <laughs> because he knew it would like cheer me up. So, feeding you your artwork. Yeah. It's just like, come, come on, off you go. We know everybody's going to feel so much better after this. Um, that's so funny. I have to tell you one crazy thing that um, when I went to university, so I was, you know, the artsy kid growing up too. Um, but my dad is a scientist and my mom is an artist. Wow. So I went for first year marine biology. So we have a lot in common. Yeah. So I did the whole first year biology and then it was my dad that, um, my PhD science dad called me at the end of my first year and said, what are you doing? <gasps> Your he science, science dad, dad wow, said, that's a surprise. I know. He said, I think you should switch into fine art. Isn't wow. I would have thought the artist mom would have said that to you. That's she was, she was worried about it. She was the one that was like, Oh God, it's really hard. <laughs> but it's so funny. Yeah. It's so funny that you said that though. Cause you said, you know, to have a brain that does both yes. decently. That's sort yes. of how I was. I was like good. At, I was, I didn't excel at both, but I was pretty good at both. And it seemed like science just seemed more responsible than yes. going to art school. Right. Um, but then I did, I, I switched, um, in, in my second year and finished as a, a fine arts painting student. So it's just so funny when you said that. So I had to tell you that part. That's great. Along. Okay. So now you've got three kids, you're photographing, you've got Photoshop working. What's the step to make you go, I'm done with me. I'm not going to go to med school. What are you going to do? Did you keep your part-time job while you were figuring out <laughs> photography? What did you do? It's so funny because I started, like I said before, I started doing my conceptual editing in my day job. And I was doing oh. that more than my actual day job. And so oh. I actually got fired from that job. Um, and then the, you know, my boss, my quote unquote boss was like, um, I want you to work here. Don't you want to work here? You know, like, yes, I'm firing you, but you can get your job back. Like right now, if you say that you want this job. And I looked at her thinking, and so this is the pitchfork thing, right? So I had a choice to make right in that instance. And honestly, I don't know that many people would have been able to make that decision so so quickly like I did and 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 when faced with it. But I had this woman telling me that I, she was firing me, but didn't want to fire me and would give me my job right back if I proved to her right that second that I wanted it, right? Which is weird, but um, I needed to show her that. Right. And so, I had to make a decision now, do I lie to her and tell her that I want this crappy job? Um, <laughs> or um, do I respond to the universe telling me there's something more for me to do? And I said, no, I'm good. Thanks, 
thank thank you i thanked her and she thought it was you know i was being i was being nasty or some way i wasn't but it really was thanking her i said you know thank you for this i needed this i needed to be let go so that i could have enough strength to move on and do the thing that i'm meant to do um wow. so and, and from that that's where i was just like okay so now what i don't have a job I left that office skipping down the street like somebody who just won the lottery. <laughs> I was like, I don't have any money. <laughs> I'm going home to pick up my kids early because I don't actually have a job, but it feels great. <laughs> um, and I just dove right in to the consent. I, I went home, I made a piece. Um, and then my mom was like, well, you know, we can't support you anymore. So you're going to have to come back from Miami and come home to New York. And I did. I fought her on that, but then I did eventually move back to New York um, to live with my parents. And so that is a key part of my journey also, because I know there's a lot of people who are not blessed to have that option um, of living with you know, family members that are, are going to help support you through your transition or through whatever it is that you're working on. And so I know how blessed I was to have that. Um, but it doesn't take away from the fact that in short order, and I, I mean, like within three to six months, I was working on album covers um, for singers. You know, I, I was picking up any type of gig that I could as a photographer and marketing myself. And how are you finding those gigs? Like, was this through? Just this... honestly, Instagram is that's going to ask the yeah. power of social media. Like if people stop misusing social media and they get to the business of things, they can be very successful just understanding how to use it. And I just started posting the works that I was doing for singers. You know, I, mm -hmm. I worked with Yazra, I, I worked with several other different uh, singers and other projects. And slowly but surely, it started building my, my following. Um, but then really what started happening was the rewriting history. I woke up one day and said, you know, I don't really want to work in this way anymore. Uh, I want to do something that's more powerful, that speaks to Black identity and experiences in a different way than what I was doing. Um, and that's when I, I, I said that I would never work for another client like that again. Uh, and I would focus my energy on, on rewriting history. Wow. And that's the title of your, it's sort of ongoing work now, right? But how did, yeah. okay, so what came next? painting or, or how did you all of a sudden know how to sculpt paper gowns? <laughs> so I did it. Actually. I had to, I had to jump in. I know it's, it's such an interesting process, but this is um, why I have all these questions. I'm like, okay, I'm going to need some kind of chart or a timeline because I don't understand. I, know, right? I think I should give a timeline every time I do an interview. I <laughs> so I, um, I had, so I jumped from working solely on just conceptual pieces, which means that if somebody was hiring me, they were hiring me to do some sort of magical aesthetic or levitation or what have you. Um, but within that space, I was already working creatively with costuming and things like that. And so it wasn't okay. a stretch for me to move from um making these these costumes out of everyday objects to you know forming um, a larger body of work that was going to use a material that was inexpensive um, wow. as a black woman as a black artist 
who is used to not having access to funds that would allow me to create the works that I need to create, I really was forced to, to, to make from a, a, a place of limitation. Um, mm. So, and that's really the, the way that I work today on purpose. You know, I limit myself access to certain things, even if I have money for it, because I find that within a space of limitation, the most brilliant ideas are born. Um, because yeah, you have to be that much more innovative and right. yeah, that's right. You have to think outside of the box. Right. And so, um, from that space, I started looking at, um, you know, renting costumes for rewriting history, which I could not afford and, you know, buying the fabrics maybe to make the, the, the garments because I had that fat, the high school of fashion industries, um, experience under, you know, behind me, nothing really from any of that told me that I could um, create this work. So rewriting history as a title came first. And then I realized I could use paper, which was very inexpensive. So that's how it jumped to um, rewriting history. It was really about learning how to be creative with the material that I was using. Um, but then also to use that material as a statement and critique on history. Wow. So powerful. I'm so happy you're on here because I, you know, I've been following you and I keep, I was trying to figure out like, okay, okay. See that the photography was first. Then she was taking photographs of the people in the gowns. And then the gowns started appearing on their own as like sculptural pieces so what was the first thing that you made out of paper did you go like full in and make a giant gown <laughs> pretty much yeah pretty much. I actually I did research um because I was really looking to see I always start my research with that I, I always start with looking at what art is already doing you know what artists are already doing um because and I've said this before I often say it you know, I, it's very important for me to not copycat anything or concept that's already out there. Um, so I looked at what paper artists were doing. I don't think my search was as thorough as it should have been, honestly, back then, because I was, I was really only coming across um, paper cutters mm. and different types of uh, paper artists, which by the way, they do amazing work. This is not even a reflection on them. Of course, like, yeah. I don't do that work because I'm just like, whoa, they do a whole <laughs> other level of work. But it's not what I was looking for. I was looking at how the uh, Baroque dress could be translated into a different material and then be worn by the human body. Um, at the time, I didn't know that there was another artist already doing that. Isabel, Isabel de Boschgrave, mm. um, which I've become familiar with. She's a European artist that have been doing this uh, paperwork for a very, very long period of time, as far as like making, you know, dresses, baroque dresses, period dresses out of paper and anything else out of paper. I, I didn't come across her because my search really was focused on how to make these dresses out of paper so they can be worn. Right. Now, since then, of course, I know her work, um, but there was nothing that really could guide me on how to um, not only aesthetically make this happen and how to treat the paper, but then how to allow a model to wear it and photograph it for a certain amount of time. 
all of that to say that it, it, the, the journey really started with um, a lot of ex experimentation. Even when I did come across other artists like Isabel that was doing that work, um, there's secrets in her process, as there should be. Yeah, as yeah. Um, she wasn't giving away anything, <laughs> right? Um, and I was like, I like that. But so I needed to figure out not only how to make a dress out of paper, but then uh, how is it going to breathe for an artist that has to sit in it for two hours? So I had to rely on a more architect mind, you know, like mm -hmm. breaking it apart. It's not just art, artistic. It's not an art. It's not an artistic sculpture, really, at the end that I'm creating. It becomes something that's more like an architectural sculpture mm -hmm. in a sense, because I need to figure out entry. I need to figure out posing. Um, is she standing? Is she sitting? If she's sitting, how does the dress have to be made so it doesn't crinkle in a way where it tears the paper? Like, so many questions that I needed to answer through experimentation. Well, and I just saw one of your latest Instagram posts with the ribbon down the back of the corset. Yeah. When you're talking about like you need an entry point because yeah, how do you get a model into a paper dress without ripping the paper yeah. dress apart? That's yeah. Right. So that's an answer. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's an answer to the that's the answer to the um, to the dress and the sculpture that you really have to you will only discover as an artist in anything that you make by experimenting. Yeah. Uh, and so my studio is often much like the way that I grew up. It's a hub. It's a, it's a lab for e experimenting and, and, uh, you know, a lot of failures. I was just going to say, have you got a lot of paper pulp and stuff <laughs> sitting on your floor? <laughs> I have, I have, I have plates of, uh, I'm looking at them now, like plates of paper pulp um, that I'm saving for later to use. I've got skeleton, I've got a spine. Um, yeah, like I've got so many different things in my, in my studio that really help influence the, the process. Yeah. yeah. Oh, that's so cool. I, well, I think the first piece I saw of yours um, was rest in peace. Mm -hmm. Um, with the sort of lit, um, is it actually lit the, on the chest? Yes. Yes. Oh, okay. Yeah. Can you talk about that? Like how recent is that piece? Okay. So it's, it's, it's interesting. I'm skipping a huge chunk, aren't I? No, no, you're not. Um, and I'm sure somebody's going to ask about this because it's something that's not, that's noticed. So the original rest in peace image is of a bodice with text on it and a hanging body with the sky behind it, right? Mm -hmm. so that's the original piece, that's the original dress that I put on my model and I photographed for the work. Later on, and I would say maybe like four years later, this new dress that you're speaking of with the light shows up. Okay. Um, and people are asking like, is that the same dress? It's titled Rest in Peace Dress. So what happened was, there were some dresses that because of the process, um, I started learning how to make the dresses better. And I also started learning uh, that I wanted to implement aspects uh, into the dress that weren't there before, like light. And so the original rest in peace dress, which was worn and photographed, I have, but I really wanted for exhibition purposes to recreate that dress in a way that would grab 
attention, mm. um, even in a, in a, in a dark lit room. So I was like, it'd be really wonderful to recreate this dress in a way that was, that was, that was, um, that was going along with the rest of the dresses I was creating, but also had some light in it. Mm-hmm. So it's a recreation of the original dress. It looks different in every way. There's no text. There's no, um, you know, shallow, deep part of the body that, that has the, the, the uh, painted sky, which is replaced with the blue light. Okay. Recreation of the dress, which I started doing around four years after the collection was started. Well, okay. See, now here's my other question. This is why I was like, wait a minute. I think I just did a big old jump here. Mm -hmm. And this is what I couldn't figure out too, when I first started following you. So you're building these dresses, but they, you're not displaying them as art. You're putting a person in them and you're photographing and the final photograph of the person in the sculpture is the final piece. Yes. But at some point, there's no models in them. And these, these dresses are just sculptures on their own. Mm-hmm. So that was four years ago? Exactly. Okay. It was four, four years ago. So I was preserving the dresses after they were worn. Where do you keep them? (laughs) Where do you have room for those giant dresses? I'm I'm absolutely crazy because I live in New York City where there's like no space. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) I'm like, I'm just going to make life-size dresses and and all over the place. But I had to decide they're either going to last um, long enough for the exhibition to happen or they're going to fall apart because of time and decay. Mm-hmm. Um, and if any, you know, anyone who knows me knows that I'm very much interested in life and death, the processes of life and death, perhaps as part of my science mind, perhaps as part of my spiritual self or combination, but my work is really an extension of those things. Um, and so also that's where the Buddhism side of me comes into play, where the dresses become sort of a mandala, if you will, um, the idea of creating something absolutely beautiful, if you can achieve that in a, in a short amount of, or in, in a whatever amount of time that you can do it. Um, and then you destroy it afterwards, or it is destroyed. It, mm. it almost like implodes on itself. And the attachment is not there. Um, so wow. that's really, hard. It's hard. It really is hard. And so I really had to teach myself how to incorporate my own personal meditations into my process as an artist, because I knew that I was working with um, a material that was impermanent, that is impermanent, that, but it was also speaking to my interest in life and death. And it was also signifying that. And so I had to let go and they will fall apart. So that also became the reason why I started remaking the dresses. You know, like it was a necessity as well. It's like a dress will survive, a dress will not. And if I have to remake it, how do I remake it? Um, Will it be the same or as close as the old one? Or will I remake it in a way that shows what I've learned in my my, my paper skills? Right. And so that's putting light in there. Yeah, exactly. So the light in there. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> that that piece was I mean it's just I'm I'm sure you've gotten I it was everywhere for a while there all over Instagram yes. um because it is just so arresting like it just stops you and I mean the image in that is lit is so um it that's it's a body hanging too right mm-hmm. yeah. yes 
It's a, it's a cutout of a body hanging. Yeah. And it's just kind of takes your breath away. And um, so, okay. Can you talk about, I mean, I know that this whole series is, um, I mean, I'm sure you've got a very cohesive artist statement sort of behind it. And so instead of me trying to guess at it and (laughs) I'm going to get you to say, can you just sort of talk about that in general, about what your message is and what you're trying to express by, you know, this beautiful work that you're doing? Well, thank you for calling it beautiful. Oh Um, my gosh. It's not hard to call it beautiful. (laughs) (laughs) That means a lot to me. Um, It's really important in my process that I create something that I think is aesthetically beautiful and that other people think is beautiful. Because I often use beauty as a vehicle for a lot of other things. Um, And the work really centers on Black identity and experiences. Um, As Black people, we cannot say that we all share the same exact experiences. No one can, right? They're so different. Um, And it's just really important to look at the pieces, the mosaic of Black identity and experiences to see how they come together to to create a person, Mm. how they navigate through society and things like that. So my work is really interested in, in that mosaic of Black identity and experiences um, to the point where my new, you know, my new work, the, the new generation of dresses is using exactly that, is using mosaic to speak to how I see the Black identity and mm-hmm. how I see our experiences. And so um, I'm also interested in celebrating black bodies in the most amazing, beautiful way. Um, and ensuring that uh, this is my, my visual activism, you know, mm-hmm. that I'm saying, I'm saying that um, we didn't just pop up out of nowhere. Uh, we've always been here. We've always been shaping culture and society. We will continue to. Um, and it's, it's really crucial that we look at how we are navigating the things that negative, negatively and positively impact our lives on a daily basis. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And the Baroque dresses, like why, why choose that, like that sort of uh, super decadent, over the top, you know, bows and decoration? Why did you choose that as your vehicle? My father, of course. Uh, <laughs> it goes all the way. <laughs> That, see, I really truly am a storyteller, and I realize that as a, every time I tell my story, because it goes all the way back to my dad, it's all in the details. Um, when I look at fashion history and, and construction of anything, it's not even just fashion, but just like the buildings that they created back then, and, and there's just there's just something to be said about the way things were made back then. Mm. That we we've lost um and in those details i find that is a perfect playing ground for me to use to tell all the stories that i want to tell you know it's just a nice place to be when i i'm I'm thinking about details and i'm thinking about little pieces of stories because that's what it is i my goal is not to generalize the black experience at all 
I don't want to do that ever. Uh, and I know I'm very aware that I can only take little parts and tell in one frame of a photograph right. to help tell a story to hopefully inspire a conversation. Um, and so I have one shot. I have one opportunity to do that with a dress or with a photograph. And so going back to that time period really allows me that little that space, you know, to to use details to tell that story. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the other thing is really as a Haitian, as a Haitian artist um, in Haiti, Catholicism and your, you know, European history and culture very much overlaps with African culture and traditions. Right. That is what Haiti is, right? Whether it's within the language that we speak or the religion that we practice, you know, what is the saying? A hundred percent Catholicism. And then everybody is also practices voodoo. So, (laughs) (laughs) so, you know, it's like Haiti in itself is a very interesting place to look at and culture to look at. Um, So it's almost impossible to not look at European culture and history when even talking about the experiences that I am as a Haitian artist. Right. Yeah. And in that situation, the Haitians would never be the ones that were wearing the gowns. It would be the French queen or. (laughs) Well, actually there were many, there were, there were, there were quite a few Haitians that did. And they were, they were known as the mulatres, the mulats, the lights, the crayons, the mix. Um, So in in Haitian history, we know that there were definitely um, biracial Haitians um, or free Haitians that were, you know, mixing in with the hierarchy and and, and able to navigate that. Um, mm. They were, of course, always light skinned, which speaks to the current colorism issue that that Haiti has had, right, from then to now. Um, so yes, we did wear those clothes. We did make decisions in government and all of those things. Uh, is this is really just a history and a misconception uh, or a misconception of history that um, black women and and Haitian women and men did not participate in that in, in hmm. some hmm. well see there shows my ignorance but I'm glad I asked that my son is actually he's in the ninth grade right now and they're studying revolutions and mm-hmm. so everybody has picked the French Revolution or he picked the Haitian Revolution. <laughs> What the same I say? <laughs> yeah, so he keeps coming home every day with like, did you know? And he's got like all these like crazy facts and, and uh, yeah, so it's so funny. So I'm hearing all, uh, this is how I'm learning is through him and now asking you. Yeah, um, well, you know, yeah, I'm glad you brought that up really quick because I think that the Haitian revolution slash French revolution is a very, very important thing to think about because people I think over or underestimate how Haitian history and behavior uh, and actions have really impacted American history and civil rights. Um, Without the Haitian revolution and Haiti becoming the first free black nation, we might not have had the Underground Railroad. And it took nearly a hundred years for word to get to America that there was this country called Haiti that was free and black. 
Um, and once that happened, that was really the inspiration for the Underground Railroad. So we really, it, it, wow. it, it's almost irresponsible to not look at Haitian history as it relates to Europe, as it relates to American history, as it relates to um, how revolutions are fought and won mm-hmm. by Black people. Yep. Because um, if that's we were why to- my son picked it. He said, that's right. and the Haitians won. He's like, I love that. Right. So that's well, why there's, I something, there's something to be said in them and them winning that because then it think, the question for me becomes, how do we win that revolution today? Yeah. So we talk about Black injustice and justice. Mm-hmm. I know it's a lot, right? <laughs> it's a lot, but it's so important. And I'm so glad that, you know, um, that you're making work like this to have these conversations. That's exactly the amazing thing about artists throughout history is bringing things that need to be talked about to the surface. Um, And it's especially um, good when you do it in such a beautiful way and you lure people in with that beauty and then teach them a lesson. (laughs) You know, it's so good because it really, it is like that piece with the light in the front. Um, it lures you in and then you have to look closer and you have to do some thinking and some learning and some, you know, introspection, which I think is amazing. Um, one thing I have to say, your paper shoes. Oh man, I love your paper shoes. And I read somewhere that that wasn't even a, like a thing. And now like people love them so much that you're making paper shoes more often. Yes. Yeah. That's so true. Like it, wasn't it wasn't even a thing for me to be honest it was just a detail yeah um, that I wanted my my model specifically in the piece of uh, Marie Antoinette is dead she's wearing paper shoes and of course she can do that because she was sitting down um and I decided at that point I wanted to start making paper shoes but then you know it wasn't ever this thing of well I make them as collectible items or anything like that, um, over time, I really had to think about the importance of feet as it relates to freedom mm-hmm. and strength and um, everything that Black people have had to rely on to survive. Um, and the feet really became an important part of the conversation. Um, and I would say, as early as maybe two years ago, like this is not, not early, but as late as two years ago, this is not something that dawned on me early on. It took time. Um, but the feet really are, are important. And then it's also, you judge a person by the shoes that they wear. And we often forget that we do. Yeah. Uh, so it's like also how many times do you look down at somebody's feet to look at what shoes they're wearing so that you can make that ju- judgment. Right. Um, I really needed to have that as part of the conversation um, as far yeah, that as totally makes sense. The running of black feet. Yeah. To, right. And the, and the fact that we weren't able to wear such delicate shoes just to sit or stand or walk in the garden. Um, so yeah, it's a, it's a very crucial part of my story. And you know, I think what's so neat about that, like how you said it sort of didn't even occur to you until a couple of years ago I think that that must, there there must be something in the way that you make that led to that because um, I've always been, like you said earlier, like 
I need instant gratification with my art. Like that's why I was doing quick collages and I was like, ah, there made one. But, um, I've been really pushing myself. Maybe it's, you know, hitting my forties or something, but I'm trying to be more patient with my work. So, you know, having processes where I make something and I have to let it dry for 24 hours before I can do the next thing makes me feel like I'm going to lose my mind mixed with being really proud of myself that I can wait until the next day, you know? And so I've been doing a lot of, um, clay work. And so I have to just do this stuff. And so I've got, you know, TV on in the background or whatever, and I'm just like repeating this stuff. But as you're doing it, it's very meditative, you know, and as I'm rolling, I've been making clay cigarettes, hundreds and hundreds of clay cigarettes. So I'm making these clay cigarettes, but it's so meditative that you can kind of start thinking about other elements of your work or why you're doing things because you're not, you're not actually having to think about what you're doing with your hands. And so I wonder because your work is so meticulous and you really, you know, it takes time and it's repetitive. If then your mind can wander to then have these like, Oh, feet. And, you know, to have those sort of moments. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's where the instant gratification falls short um yeah with time you know i think that a well-developed artist is one that understands that um there's only so far that instant gratification can take you if you're someone like that um and for me i had to learn that it was more than that Mm -hmm. Um, until this day people are like my god you have so much patience to make these things um and I think that a lot of a lot of them don't realize how much time it took. Yes, I've only been doing this for six years, but it's taken all of that time to learn the patience. Right. Every now and then the impatience will sneak in, right? So I'll ruin some of my tiles or my, my experiments because I'm like, no, I just have to do it now. Yeah, me so too. To, <laughs> I'll ruin something just because of my impatience. But for the most part, um making these dresses doing these photographs like just to get an end result of a photograph requires about five months of work wow right it 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 takes a grand operation to make this happen and we're not even talking about including the fact that i'm a mom and a wife you know and all the other titles that i play on a daily basis but just as a creative I am researching, I'm reading, I'm watching documentaries, I'm taking notes, and then I have to construct this thing in real life and figure it out because there's a lot of information sometimes still that are just up to the imagination. Right. Um, And so I'm doing that, and then there's the failures in between, um, and then starting over, and then I don't sketch. I didn't start sketching until this year. Um, Yeah, everything in my head <laughs> and which make was was making the time longer in the process now i'm starting to sketch because i feel so confident in the way that i want to approach something because i've already imagined it in a 3d format in my head right you put it down on paper it's a weird thing for me but it's such a process that it really takes about five months from beginning to end with conceptualization, storytelling, building, creating, um, props, finding the right model, and then editing the work. Um, That I don't think that people realize it it took pretty much all of my six years of doing this work to get to that point of having the patience to do do it. 
Yeah, you've developed that skill along the way as well. Children help you. <laughs> yes, yes, don't they? Yeah, they don't always put their shoes on when you tell them to. Um, so do you, um, the, the dresses and the things that you have as sort of standalone sculptures, are those always in a photograph first? Or do you now make things that are sometimes just standalone that aren't part of a, an overall photographic composition? Um, it goes back. It's a combination of the two. There are times when I'm making something specifically just for a photograph. Okay. And so, then can that piece that's for a photograph then be a standalone piece or is it not um, strong enough to like it's. No, it's had... always made. It's always made with with the idea that it will be standalone for an exhibition. Oh, okay. Okay. So that's the amount of foresight that I actually need to have in my work. It's yeah. not just working in the now, it's working in the how is this going to work after it's been worn or used or whatever for exhibition pur purposes. So I really have to like expand myself in a way that is sometimes a little overwhelming just because it's like you don't know how paper is going to respond after a few uses you know, well, then, um, depending on where you're showing it, like if you show yeah. in New Orleans versus, you know, right. Denver, like right. it's going to be totally different with the air and everything that impacts everything. And so because of that, I've, I, and that's another reason why I started redoing my dresses because I learned, um, you're going to be, I'm going to be showing the work in different temperatures. Um, and they're going to have, there's no way that I can really control that. So I start to use, I started to use more archival material in the work so that it would last, whether it was showing in a place like New Orleans or right. here in New York or wherever. So I am working with wood glues, you know, I'm working with, with archival papers. Uh, I, I'm not, I'm often working with inks mm. and, and powdered pigments rather than um, acrylic paints just because acrylic paints wear and tear on the on the paper faster. Oh. There's different decisions that I have to make to allow these sculptures to last longer. So cool. Um, speaking of sculptures, I just saw, again, on Instagram, I do mm -hmm. do other things besides scroll through Instagram, but um, <laughs> maybe. Um, I saw that the altar that you made. Yes. Um, yeah. That was gorgeous. So is that kind of a new thing for you, sort of doing these more object-like things? So I'm so happy that you brought up the altar um, shrine work because that's a very, very important part of my work today. Um, I've been sitting on this idea for a few years, actually, and it happened maybe two years after starting rewriting history. My sister lives in New Orleans, um, and of course, we're Haitian, so there's this this overlap and when you go to new orleans you kind of feel like you went to haiti yeah <laughs> um so and and like i said i've always been kind of obsessed with life and death and celebration of of the dead and my culture so my last trip to new orleans uh, which was recently a couple months ago i realized you know i'm i'm ready to do this work of that that spiritual in that spiritual sense um meaning I want to talk about um, how we celebrate our dead and how we communicate with our ancestors. Um, and so it was clear to me that it would be in the shape of a, a shrine or an altar. Um, but then I came back and thought, you know, 
let me just work on a prototype that's going to inform the rest of this work. And I created this shrine, altar shrine, that was really a combination of, of New Orleans and Haiti mm. and how we celebrate our dead. Um, and this piece came out and I was also able to infuse my photography work in that um, to add to the portraiture of the work. So moving forward, the goal is to create these large shrines, these ultra shrines um, that will almost be like life size. Wow. Like if you're, you're walking into a, a, you know, a cemetery or something and, and you are honoring an ancestor. Um, that is a very important, also an important part of the black identity that I, I look to explore. Um, and so it's starting with this work for me. I could tell there was some, like, I saw that piece and I was like, Ooh, there's something happening here. Yeah. And it's just that's so amazing. I'm actually doing a whole series of altars right now, not in the same way. Um, have you ever been to Venice? I have not, not yet. Oh, you would love it. You should see the pigment shops you can go to. Oh, you said pigment shops. I'm like, okay, that has to happen now. Yeah. It's, <laughs> I walked by the window of one and I was like, Arch! and like, it's just all the colors. Oh, it's just stunning. It's just stunning. I bought one little jar of red. I don't know why I haven't done anything (laughs) with it. It was just, you just, you know, it was like a candy store. It's like, I just want all the colors. Um, But in Venice, there's obviously the altars and things in the churches and whatever, but there's all these little makeshift altars that people have set up in their windows. So there'll be like, you know, a picture of Mary and then like plastic flowers, but then somebody's thrown like a garbage up there too, as they walk by. Right? So it's like these weird little like makeshift things. So anyway, I've been working on this series of altars um, to my uterus because I just had a hysterectomy. And oh, wow. so I've been having this, like, I thought I'd be happy to have it gone because it was causing so many problems and I'm not having any more babies and whatever, but then they take it out and you're like, Oh, that's mm-hmm. weird. Um, and so I've been sort of having this idea of like honoring it because it brought my son, mm-hmm. um, but also all the problems that it's caused me, hence the many, many hundreds of clay cigarettes. I'm kind of making these ashtray altars because, you know, on these things in Venice, people, somebody will have like put out their cigarette on right. Mary. Right. <laughs> on Mary, like what yeah. does that mean? <laughs> yeah, what does that, what's happening here? What can I read into this? You know, there's like a crunched up pop can that's just been like shoved up in it, you know, and it's sort of like, that's kind of how I'm envisioning my, my lady bits, my inner workings is just this like beautiful, but totally broken place, you know? Okay. And so I've been working on these altars. So when I saw that on yours, I was just like, oh my God, I love this. And then I thought, oh, I bet she's going to go really big with these at some point. I am, you know, and I love, I love that you shared that. Thank you for sharing that because, you know, the work isn't just geared towards black viewers. It's, it's something that I hope everyone can get something out of. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and that just hearing you share that part of your story is, is what I'm talking about. You know, um, there's this, so many there's so much confusion when it comes to altars and shrines and who is it for who is it not you know mm-hmm. um and there's this this idea that if if i believe in this or i don't believe in that i can't have an altar space or a shrine space or and you're talking about having something like that for your uterus right? <laughs> that's important 
but that's so that's it's so kind of weird but it's also important yeah <laughs> it, well it's, i don't think it is because it's honoring of a body part that functioned for something so important like life Mm -hmm. Right. What do you you think about the Egyptians and when they die, what they do with their organs, right? Yeah. For a reason, because of the importance that they had. Um, and I don't think that what you're expressing is so different from that. Um, and so my desire to want to do this work really is also part of that. It's it's to show to have a deeper conversation on the shrine and the altar and the honoring of things. And also to create magical spaces within our own personal space in our homes that otherwise we might just ignore and say, oh, that's just a useless corner. I can't do anything with that or a useless, you know, uh, countertop or whatever. It's also how do we how do we add spirituality into our everyday lives, into regular spaces that we haven't thought of before? Yeah. Um, and, and everyone does it differently, right? Like as you right, just exactly right. what you were saying about um like, you know, Catholicism but voodoo, you know? Right. Like the, the combination <laughs> of those. Um which essentially they're doing the same thing, right? You know, so when I I was doing all this research and I grew up Catholic but we left the church. I don't know why. At 14 suddenly we start mm. going to church. So there's That's a there's a story there. I don't there's know what it is. There's a story there. Yeah. <laughs> Um, we just stopped going, but anyway, um, so I'm looking up all these, you know, all the research about what goes into a Catholic altar. Like if you're going to be a good Catholic, what do you need? You know, we're going to need a candle. We're going to need, you know, and then, the frankincense and myrrh. Right. And there's gotta be, there's gotta be some saint in there who did something great. Um, and then, you know, but then you look at, um, I went to Bali years ago and, um, every morning, they put out these little offerings and um, they're Hindu offerings. They're made of banana leaves. They're shaped like little boxes and they're filled with um, coins and cigarettes and flowers and fruit. And then they're just left out on the street and nobody picks them up and they get run over by cars and people walk on them. And then the next day, houses, businesses, everyone puts out a new one. And so Bali smells amazing. It smells like tobacco and incense and flowers because these things are just out on the street and they just rot mm -hmm. and there's fresh ones put out every day. And there's something, so same thing about the broken, you know, beautiful, but broken, like they're these amazing things, but that's a totally different religion, but that's the way they do it. You know? So there's something, um, just beautiful and magical and about all of it and I love that this is where you're headed I mean I love what you do now and I'm sure they'll all work together and but I was so excited when I saw that I was like oh what is she up to <laughs> it's exciting <laughs> I'm excited I'm so I'm so excited I'm so excited I'm, I'm looking forward right now I'm working out of my home studio um I'm no longer in my Bronx larger studio um because of COVID Okay. So it's been really interesting to figure out how I'm going to create these larger bodies of work um, at home. Right. Fortunate to have a studio here, but you know, there's only so much that I can do. Um, but I think everything. Well, I'm sure you will figure it out. You'll use your oh, your yeah. science brain to work that one out. Um, can oh. we also throw in that? Okay, you had three children, but now you have two more, and you're a mother of five. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I did not. I 
I knew about the baby because I was like, I'm not going to call her and ask her to be on the podcast because she's changing <laughs> diapers right now. And then I saw a toddler in one of the pictures and I was like, hold up. That's just not just a new baby. And then when we got on the call before we started recording, you said, well, you know, we're talking about being tired. And you said, well, being a mother of five, I was like, what are you what? even talking about? <laughs> and you're doing all this amazing work. <laughs> God. So you are now remarried and you have two more babies. Yes. Yeah, so I am married um, and I have two more babies with my, with my husband. So my older children um, that witnessed me go through the beginnings of this crazy ass journey, um, <laughs> Rain, Skylar, and Sequoia. Um, oh, those are beautiful yeah. names. Yeah, they're, they're my, my sweeties. Uh, so Rain is 23, uh, Skylar is 15, and Sequoia is 12. Oh, um, my word. Yeah, so the timing was a very interesting because it really allowed uh, my older kids to help out a little bit at home, you know, with with the babies when I started having them. Um, now, you know, my eldest has moved out as life happens and, you know, life is just changing for the older kids. But um, nonetheless, I have a I have two children under two <laughs> still. Um, so there's four kids at home right now. And it's, it's definitely been a journey and I, I really couldn't do it without a supportive husband and, um, you know, children that are able to help out older kids that are able to help out in some way. Like yeah. now. Yes. Like right now, for example, <laughs> that's amazing. I mean, that makes your insane, wonderful work, even that much more like mind blowing the fact that you've got so many things on the go and, um, you're not going for the instant gratification work. You're actually putting the time <laughs> with these little, how, how old is your baby now? So Tristan is going to be six months this month. So he's, he's still very new. Uh, Esme is going to be two in March. So next month oh as well. God. So we're entering two milestones for the both of them. Um, you know, it's it's a lot. It really, it took some time. I thought I was done having babies um, when I met my husband. <laughs> nope. <laughs> I've got three. I've contributed more than enough to society. Yeah. <laughs> I'm good. I'm doing my art. And honestly, that that was really what helped my career push through so fast in, in the span of six years was this was this idea that, or the fact that my kids were a little bit older. And so it was just easier to make certain sacrifices, sacrifices with them that I couldn't make with babies that I have right now. Right. Um, and so I just, I slept, ate, woke up to just creating back then. Yeah. And now, you know, things are very different. And so when I met my husband, I was like, wow, okay, I'm, I'm literally going to have to take a major break from my work and figure out how to reincorporate my work into this life um, somehow. And I, I feel like I'm doing that. Um, things are a little bit slower as far as how long it takes me to make something and how much I can be in my studio. But the, what that means for me is I just have to be in my studio much more. Right. You know, so and like, when you're in there, you have to be super efficient. <laughs> Right, exactly. Yeah. So how do I maximize my time if I only have an hour or two hours to work? And so there's a lot of not quite cutting corners, but how do I make something 
that would have taken me two hours to make. How do I make that in an hour? Right. Uh, with the same attention to detail and skill as before. Um, and, and so that's what I'm, I'm doing right now is really just figuring that out and working. I'm a workaholic and I just feel like with anything one should and has to, if they want to be successful to work constantly as much as you can, even if it's a minute, even if it's 20 minutes, just to constantly hone in those skills. Um, and then also it's just for your, 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 your darn sanity. Yeah. You know, whether or not you have kids, this is not just, this is not isolated to people with children. It's like period to navigate the hard times that we've been going through as a society, um, political, spiritual, racial, all of that. It's really important to carve out just a few minutes for yourself to create your own magic. And really that's what I'm doing. I don't think I'm doing anything different than what others are doing. I'm just more focused on what it is and more specific on what that is. Yeah. Well, and especially now too, when you're working on stuff that you're excited about, it's really easy to go, you know, when you're like, Ooh, I really want to work on, you know, these shrines it gives you that inspiration to get in there, even if it's for half an hour in between napping and a snack and a, this and that, you know, whatever it, it's, you get that drive and you obviously have always had drive, you know, for everything that you're doing. And um, yeah, it's, it's uh, you're quite something to watch now oh. that we, now that we know all of the facts, it's just like, Ooh, <laughs> no wonder you're having a glass of wine. I need a glass of wine just Thank listening you. to you. Yeah, you know, I'm always like, I'm like, wait, it's three o'clock. Is it too early to have a glass of wine? No. Someone no. world is drinking with me right now. Like, <laughs> That's right. So. Yeah, you could be in Paris for heaven's sake. Um, so are do you have anything like is there any shows or anything that you that people should know about? Or are you just sort of taking your moment right now or what's going on? So all of those things are happening actually. So because, of COVID, <laughs> because of COVID, I I early on when it hit, I felt like I needed to just back off a little bit on showing the work. Um, and so I've decided that nothing will show or I won't participate in anything until sometime in the fall. Okay. Um, hopefully, if things go the way they're supposed to be going with the pandemic, you know, these institutions will open in the fall. So I have. Um, two dresses that are going to be worn at the Isabella Gardner Museum in Boston, which wow. I'm super, super excited about because the next generation of dresses will be debuted there. Um, so that's going to be so awesome. exciting. Yeah. Also, before the Isabella Gardner Museum opens, though, um, for this event, I definitely plan on showing the dress, the dresses beforehand, just so people can get hopefully excited about what they'll see in person. Um, there's another announcement that I'm, I'm going to wait on to share just because okay. it's, it's, it's even more sweeter news. Um, <laughs> and I have to follow the lead on this one. So um, I'll be sharing that soon. Okay. Uh, a month. Um, if I'm on Instagram, I'll have a look, but like, oh. <laughs> I, you know, I'm not, I'm not on there all the time. So, <laughs> you know, just like every now and then. Yeah. Like once a year I scroll through. <laughs> <laughs> so um i'll definitely email you and and keep you posted on what's okay. happening with that um and and my work will be seen there as as far as like making another dress it seems as though institutions are very interested in my dresses now in a way that they weren't before um 
and atonement. Atonement is a, it's actually generating quite a bit of, of interest as well. So between now and the fall, I'll be working on the altar work, the um, shrine altars, and the, the dresses for the institutions. Um, if anything is pushed back in time or further ahead, I will be letting all my followers know on social media. Mm -hmm. And I also believe I'll be participating in a few more podcasts and virtual exhibitions between now and the fall. Mm -hmm. so just keeping my fingers crossed that we can all meet up again and celebrate soon. I know. I hear you. I, I have so many things that I could do in New York <laughs> that I just need to get there. And then boy, I would be efficient. I could see like 10 people go to like, you know, cause I just keep thinking, Oh, well, nope. Push, 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 push. So it's going to be quite a trip when I get there. I'm coming but to you see you. Great work. I gotta say you're, you're having conversations with artists and people that really have amazing voices um and i really commend you for that you know like there's it matters that you're choosing to do something important with your time you know like and maybe you can't or are not able to meet people face to face and go to these events and do all the things that are part of the work that you do but you're not stopping that converse those conversations that are very important in helping shape society so i really commend you for thank that. you thank you very much no i mean it's I mean, the people I've had on in the last few months, well, I mean, I think your episode, what are you? You're like 194, 194 mm -hmm. conversations. Wow. But the last few months, I think with pandemic, people have had time to think, people miss people. Um, there have been some stellar episodes and um, this is yet another one. And I'm so, so happy that we got to, you know, quote unquote meet. I love that we kept the video on so we could see each other, not just yes. black screens. <laughs> and um, I can't wait to stand in one in front of one of your um, shrines, maybe walk right into it, stand beside a dress. I can't wait to see them in person and it will happen one day. It will. So, um, I really appreciate you having me on the show. It's it's really amazing and it's an honor because uh, I know all the, the work that you're doing um, culturally, socially, and the important conversations that you're having. So um, I'm just excited to be a part of that. I am so excited too. And now I have an excuse to go and write a gigantic post about you with all of the stuff that we talked about uh, so that everybody can see all of the insane things. And, uh, and yeah, of course, as usual, I will be stalking you. I mean, following you on Instagram <laughs> and, uh, and keep me, keep me posted on all your secrets. Totally will. Totally okay. will. Sending lots of love and hugs. You too. Talk to you soon. Okay. Bye. Okay, bye. Whoa. Now that was an origin story. Fashion, pre-med, self-taught photographer, mom of five. Okay. I was already completely in awe of her before we talked. And now I feel like I should make an altar for her. <laughs> Everything Fabiola and I talked about is over on my site right now. So just pop over to thejealouscurator.com to have a look. Thank you so much to Fabiola for taking time out of her super busy life to talk to me. And as always, thank you for listening.
I will keep you updated on the new podcast network and the No Such Thing as Too Much Art Society in the next few weeks. But until then, there will be more art for your ear next weekend. See you then.